Hello, and welcome to another For the Love of Sports, another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel, and this is the show where I get to have conversations with people about that intersection that we all love of sports and business. And today, I have my friend Paul Pellinger on. He is the co-founder of Recovery Unplugged. He's also the author of Music is Our Medicine. Paul, how are you doing today? Hey, man. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for allowing me to come into your gorgeous office that you have down there. It looks <laughs> nice. It looks fantastic. I'm very jealous. Yeah. Hopefully everybody watching can see all those beautiful palm trees. And <laughs> I mean, hey, man, it's summer. So we're all getting outside a little bit more. And there goes another boat by right now. Um, but <laughs> Paul, I- I'm so excited for this conversation to get to talk to you about some of the athletes that you work with, about just some of the things that you've gotten to do, the things that you've earned in your life and how you've been able to get to where you get to. But Paul, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Oh my God. I personally believe sports is one of the best teachers of life there is. It teaches you how to have integrity. It teaches you how to deal not only with losses, but also wins. It's unifying. You could be around a bunch of strangers, but we're all together rooting for our same team. It changes my mood. It changes my energy level. How do I, why did I wear number nine when I was in Little League? Was it because of Greg Nettles, for instance? So, you know, the, the point is, is that it helps with retention. Some of my best memories I've ever had were sports related, except 2004, just saying. What happened in 2004? Uh, Talk my uh, memory a little bit. Uh, well, you know, 3-0 up on the socks and uh, yeah. Oh no. Depression. Well, that is, um, <laughs> that's a conversation I'm okay with having. I'm a Mets fan. So anytime oh. that something fun like that gets to happen to our crosstown rivals, uh, I'm all for it. And I know baseball is finally back. Uh, yeah, this is airing only, or this is, you're live only a couple days after baseball said it's back. So I'm very excited about that. So Maybe maybe I'll sprinkle in some some Red Sox and Mets jokes along the way in this right. conversation. We'll see how it goes. Nothing. I'll tell you I'll tell you some strawberry and gooden stories oh, along dude. the way. Yeah, there we go. That should be fun. But no, I'm I'm so excited. I completely agree with you. Right, like with sports, you you learn so much through the competition, through the teamwork, through the community aspects that it's just such a you know it kind of almost for lack of a better term, like gets you integrated a little bit more into society, gets you to understand what it's like to be a human being, right? Because if you're just sitting at home or if you're going to school, you're learning a lot. But when you actually put yourself into that competitive nature, a lot of things do start to happen positive. And as we'll talk about a little bit, some of the negative side effects too. So, I mean, it's just, it's just one of those things where I love it so much. I was really bad at sports. Um, I still love to play them. And that's why now I just get to talk to people like you. So hopefully (laughs) it all works out for me. But let's talk about, so Recovery Unplugged, you, first off, let's talk about that for a second. What exactly is Recovery Unplugged? So Recovery Unplugged is a treatment center with locations all over the country, including South Florida, Austin, Texas, Nashville, and Northern Virginia with all levels of care from detox to uh, residential treatment, to outpatient treatment, to housing, um, as well as um, support groups and things of that nature. The difference of Recovery Unplugged compared to most traditional treatment centers is we use the existing evidence-based models like cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive therapy, 12-step facilitation model. I could go on and on. Um, But we use music as a catalyst to engage those therapies, which is a uh, a lot more effective. Yes. And I I think it's so, so interesting. So music therapy is a thing, but I think that's because you came up with it as as we said. So that's the thing. And I'm sorry to interrupt, Michael, but this is not music therapy. Oh, okay. In in the the traditional sense. Music therapy, it's not like we have somebody like playing guitar, singing, row, row, row your boat to the clients. That's not what goes on here. I'm talking about every aspect of music. If you think about some of the athletes who you've either interviewed or maybe even listening to the show, I guarantee you they have used music to train. They have used music to deal with a win or a loss in some cases to change their mood. So I just figured out a way how to harness it to combat addiction. And I'm sure we'll get into more detail about it. Yes, we will. Combating addiction. And you literally wrote the book on this. So I'm excited to (laughs) A, read the book after we're finished with this. And then B, get to talk to you a little bit more about it in this next 45 minutes, let's call it. So let's take a step back for a second. So before getting into helping people 
through through addic- uh, with addictions through music, you have to start helping people with addictions first. So I guess where is that passion for you and where did this idea of, hey, I, this is what I want to do. I want to help people overcome addiction for my life so that way I can better theirs. So I believe we are attracted to certain fields of employment for reasons. Without getting um, all psychological now, most people in the helping profession need help themselves. I'll speak for myself. And that is, I didn't wake up one day and say, hmm, I think I'll open up a treatment center using the power of music to help combat addiction. I went through my own struggles with addiction. And thank God I've been in recovery now from addiction for many, many years. I realized early on that um, traditional methods um, were not the most effective um, methods in reference to outcomes. In other words, even one went to treatment, the recidivism or relapse rates were so high um, that that there had to be something um, that we could take ownership for. And and instead of blaming the client that, you know, their mother was an enabler or they were, you know, abused or they grew up in, you know, uh, Flushing Meadows or, or something like that, um, you know, by the way, which all could be true, right? We have to take responsibility in what our part as a treatment industry is in helping not only save lives, which is the most important thing here, especially with the opiate epidemic and now relapse and substance abuse, use and abuse going on even crazier with COVID pandemic going on. But we we had to figure out a way how to improve outcomes. So Recovery Unplugged um, was born out of that frustration. You know, I grew up probably where your parents used to go in the summer as, as children. I grew up in the Catskills. And I say that to say that's where the original Woodstock site was. A lot of spiritual religious organizations hubbed out of there, whether they're the Hasidic Jews, the born-again Christians, ashrams, like name it. They all had their hub up there. So I was exposed to that kind of vibe back then. Um, I was exposed to music at a very early age. By the way, I'm not a musician. 90% of our clients at Recovery Unplugged are not musicians. This has nothing to do with that. I still get calls. Hey, I got a piano player. I think he'd be great for your. Uh, okay, cool. That's good too. But there are two things I've never heard, Michael, since I've been doing this. One, I'm a cannibal, and two, I hate music. So as Steven Tyler once told me, we were exposed to music when we were in our mother's womb through the heartbeat. So there's really no defense against it. And so I, through my trials and tribulations, both personally and professionally figured out there's got to be a better way. So I started thinking to myself, what is my job as a clinician, as a provider? It's to establish rapport with the client, lower their anxiety, change their mood, increase their energy level, reframe certain distorted perceptions, change their behaviors, and most importantly, or equally as important, help retain the necessary skill sets it occurred to me that music has all of those assets, right? How come, Michael, right now, I could go back, since you're a Met fan, to that song, um, I used to sing, beat the Mets, beat the Mets, step right up. Yeah, Remember yeah, what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about? Oh, okay, I, okay. I get it, I get okay. it. Okay. And, and but by the way, my favorite pitcher of all time, Tom Seaver, bar none, right? Hard to, so, hard to argue that. So. Yeah, yeah. So. So, but I don't remember what I had for breakfast, but a song could take me back to 1974. Like, how is that possible? And, 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 and I was like five, right? So, so there's, there's power in what I'm saying. And if harnessed correctly, there's probably a way that we can help more clients. And as a result of being open now, since 2013, our results are about four times better, you know, than the national average, which is just that many more lives being saved. That is incredible. And yeah, I think it, it's fantastic because you're so like, who doesn't like music, right? Like right. I have, I agree with you. I don't think I've ever met somebody and they're just like music, man, that's just not for <laughs> me. Like that's such a ridiculous statement to make because there's so much different music. There's, it's such an abundant space where you can find, and I've been to some weird concerts. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been to some weird places and heard some incredible, just 
wacky stuff, but you 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 find the love in it and you hear those notes and you hear the beat and the way that you put it together and the story that the song or the CD is trying to tell is always something that I've been very in, uh, in touch with and, and tried to, you know, really understand more because the I love stories, right? I grew up in an Italian household. My grandfather, you know, tells the same story 18 different ways. So you get new details all the time, but it's always that storytelling aspect. And that's why I love these, these conversations I get to have with people like you, because I get to hear your story and the stories within the stories and how you got there, which is always fun for me. And so let's figure out how you got there at what point. So, like, yeah, I'm when, always, yeah. When were you like, Hey, I figured it out. Music. Let's, right. let's see what happens. So, so I, I wish I could say I was sitting at the top of Peak 8 in Breckenridge, which is one of my favorite spots in the world. If there is a God, I think that's where he lives. And I had a white light experience, and this is how it happened. No. What happened is it was a hindsight thing. I used to see my parents when I was six, seven, eight years old come home from a hard day's work and be tired and miserable. And my mother would put on Dion and the Belmonts or the Platters or, you know, Bill Haley and the Comets or something like that. And all of a sudden they would dance around, their, their affect changed. When I was four years old, my parents owned a restaurant. They put me on the, this table and um, put on the jukebox and they had me dancing and singing to a song called uh, Yummy, 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 I Got Love in My Tummy. And I would see all the patrons like clapping and smiling. And I remember, Michael, it's not like, and someday I'm going to open up a rehab <laughs> and using music. It's been more of a hindsight. It, um, you know, growing up in, um, you know, in upstate New York, I would uh, uh, frequent the original Woodstock site. And when every summer when all the hippies would invade, you know, I, I just remember seeing like unconditional love and unity. And, and, and I'll admit hallucinogenics were involved back then. Right. Um, but I remember thinking like the catalyst to all this is music. Right. So it's been more of like a hindsight. How come every religious service I've ever been to incorporates music in their services? How come every memorable movie I've ever seen has an amazing soundtrack, right? In other words, like, I'm not that smart. Like, this is something that's right over our nose, under our nose. And, and so it, 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 it was a series of experiences over, you know, the years, Michael, that led me to make a decision to use music as a catalyst to help combat addiction, as I mentioned before, you know, born out of frustrations of horrible outcomes. And, and you say that you say, you know, hey, it's always here and you're, you're not the smartest person in the room. But right. Like, uh, I don't know, there's there's a lot of different schools of thought on how the universe works and we don't need to get too, too deep. But, you know, they're, they're one that I maybe, you know, agree with a little bit is all the ideas are out there. We just kind of have to go find them. Right? Yeah. So this idea that you had, it's, it's, as you said, it's not revolutionary. You didn't recreate the wheel or anything or, or make a flying car, but you, you figured it out. You kind of put the two things together where before you, there really wasn't anybody that put those two things together. And so I think that's the most important part, though, just because it's it sounds easy to you. And now that we look back, it's like, well, duh, of course, but no one else did it. So, I mean, we still have yeah. to give you your props and your congratulations because you figured it out. And now, as you said, you're, you're helping literally save people's lives, which is incredible. So, yeah, in 1993, I was a therapist being taught to establish rapport through the psychosocial assessment or ask good open ended questions. How are you feeling? How would you do that different next time? Right. And what I decided to do was a song back in 1993 written by Richie Supa and Steven Tyler called Amazing came out. And those of us who were in recovery back then knew exactly what that song was about. So I decided back then there were no YouTube channels. It was a um, cassette with a boom box I brought into my group. And I said, guys, I'm going to play this song. I'm going to pass out the lyrics and then we're going to talk about it. And what I didn't realize was how effective it was going to be. I knew it just affected me, right? And I've been known to be self-centered at times. So I figured, well, let me see if everyone else kind of enjoys it. The response was ridiculous. People were like going to my superior saying, you got to see what Paul just did in this group. And that was the hardest part about my job back then, Michael, is why aren't you in group? You know, and now they wanted to go to group. And now sometimes clients, people in general have difficulty uh, talking about how they think or they feel. But I guarantee you somebody's written a song about it. I had no idea 25 years later that 
Could you um, could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that song? Because off the top of my head, I can't sure. think. So if you okay. don't mind, because I think that's a sure. very important part of the story. Sure. So so Richie Supa, who is a uh, former touring member of Aerosmith and a lifelong friend of the band, specifically Steven Tyler, brilliant Grammy award-winning, prison-winning singer-songwriter kind of guy, was in a NA convention back then. A girl came up to him and said, you know, all my life I kept the right ones out and let the wrong ones in. He immediately took that one line, called Steven Tyler, and said, Steven, some girl just came up to me and said, all my life I kept the right ones out, let the wrong ones in. And Steven Tyler on the other end said, yeah, I had an angel of mercy to see me through all my sins. And Richie goes, that's amazing. Steven goes, that's the name of the song. And um, through then, it was the first song, one of the first songs written about recovery that people in recovery kind of knew all about. And they started getting all this fan mail. Hey, I was about to uh, shoot a bag of dope. The song came on the radio. I went to detox instead. I lost everything. I entered recovery. I was hopeless. That song came on and gave me hope. And it occurred to, to Richie and Steven back then that maybe some of their songs had more of a purpose than just selling records. And so that specific song was unbeknownst to me, one of the songs I used. And as a result of that, um, I had no idea 30 something years later, 25 something years later, Richie would be my creative director of recovery at Recovery Unplugged. And Steven Tyler would be here talking to the clients and, and sharing about it. And you can see that on YouTube. I know we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is, is that I knew music was going to work. But there were two things I didn't realize, Michael. One, that I was going to attract all these legendary, not only famous musicians, but um, professional athletes. And I also didn't know that there was so much science behind this. I just thought, you know, John and Paul were musical geniuses and divinely inspired. By the way, I still believe that. I do too. Um, yep, yep. By the way, yesterday was Beatles Global Day. Um, Global Awareness Day. Yes. I missed um, that. June, June 25th. Yeah. Um, all you need is love. So, but anyway, um, music pretty much appeals to the same pleasure centers of the brain that drugs and alcohol do, right? It releases endorphins. It increases serotonin levels. Um, so in an essence, what we're doing is we're teaching clients how to get high without using drugs, which then makes recovery more of a payoff than getting high. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. It does again, because music, like going to certain concerts, as I was saying before, there are certain feelings that you feel you're not going to get that anywhere else, you know, in a crowd with people. And, you know, we can't really be in crowds right now, which is pretty unfortunate, but being in a crowd of people listening to something and kind of all being spoken to through the musicians, through the music, it, there is no other feeling like that. Um, and, you know, that's why I love going to music festivals because it's just, you know, 10 hours a day of just like the greatest feeling in the world. And it's amazing. And, and it helps so much. And I think so. So as you said, though, there, there is the science behind music. How much of us like when you had this group, you put this song in front of everybody, you talked about it, you helped a lot of people, then you started getting praises to your, um, your, your superiors who then said, you know, hey, this is a good idea. At what point did you say, this is the path I want to go down? This isn't just a tool I'm going to utilize and keep it in my belt. This is going to be how I build my house. Yeah. So it's funny. I was just reminded yesterday from a friend I hadn't talked to in a while who mentioned, do you remember 20 years ago, you told me you were going to open up a treatment center using music? And I was like, no, but I always knew, you know, that music had power and if harnessed correctly could be used to help combat some of the signs and symptoms of addiction. Um, you know, what I wanted to do is I wanted to test it out further. So oftentimes I would have friends of mine who were going through, let's say, the death of a loved one or the breakup of a relationship. And as I was taught to do in my kind of 12-step support groups were to spew out cliches like, let go and let God, this too shall pass. You know, like, by the way, I'm not knocking that. That's great. If it right? works for That's you. True. That's right. Instead, what I would do is, when you get home, I want you to put on this song written by Bob Marley called Three Little Birds. 
woke up this morning to the shining sun. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be all right. And see at the end of that song, if your mood didn't get a little bit better, a little bit more hopeful. So I started experimenting and my friends or, or, or I would pull up next to somebody, right? One of the best things is um, this was um, a few years ago, actually, I pulled up, especially now during our political polarization times, I pulled up at a streetlight. I have a convertible to the right. There was this woman in a car that had a Hillary sticker, Hillary Clinton bumper sticker on to the left was a guy who had a pickup truck with a big um, cross through it that said, kneel for the flag, MF. So I obviously knew they were on two different sides of the spectrum. So I put on a song by James Brown called, I feel good, right? And I cranked it. And I looked over at the right immediately. She started bopping. I looked over at the left. He looked at me. He rolled his window down. Immediately, he started bopping his head. I, I backed up. They looked at each other. They were both bopping their heads and I drove away. And it was proof, even for that moment, that music had the ability to kind of unify. I love that. That's a good story. That's a good story. And uh, yeah, people are, um, polarization is a word that you can use. I like that one. And it's, it's, it is so true. You know, it's, it's a, it's a language that we all speak, right? Like American or like English music is popular all around the world. And there's people that don't speak English that know the words to all these songs because they just like the melody and they like the way it sounds. And, you know, so it's it's one of those universal languages, which I think is also pretty fantastic, too. And as you said, even if two people going to go out on a limb and say they probably wouldn't have a great conversation together, there's still that opportunity that they can find that common ground, which I think is is absolutely fantastic. So um, with that, then, as you said, you work with some incredibly famous musicians. Obviously, we've talked about Steven Tyler a little bit. We're going to talk about him some more towards the end. You've also, you know, the reason why I'm very excited to have you on is you've also worked with a lot of athletes. And one thing that we know around the country, obviously, it's been in the new, it was in the news before everything else that's taken over the news has been in the news. But the opioid epidemic, um, that is is just huge in America right now, just with doctors and the the pills pushing and, and how we didn't really know how bad it was, but you kind of had an idea and now we really know how bad it is. It is amplified in the world of sports, I, I, I think, because these guys, football players, going through a car accident every single Sunday, baseball players, I know it doesn't seem like the most physical game, but if you do it 162 times in 180 days, it's going to wear your body down. That's just how it works. Basketball players with the amount of time and the amount of energy and the amount of effort, hockey players just ramming into each other constantly yeah. how, with, with with professional athletes. What have you found and the like how? How bad is it within the world of sports without getting, I guess, like too, yeah. too, uh, too deep? Yeah. So one of my first exposures was with a former pretty well-known NFL linebacker back in the early 90s who basically told me, Paul, if I don't get on the field, I don't get paid. And I know for sure that I shouldn't be – I should be having surgery right now or I should be out. Like you wouldn't be able to forget alone well, – play you wouldn't be able to walk for three months if you had one so they they gave me a shot and they gave me these opiates and here i am 20 15 years out of the league and now i have chronic pain and i'm hooked on these medications and you know my life is miserable um so unfortunately um you know opiates work in terms of you know it, it, it relieving the pain well actually what it does michael is it takes away you caring about the pain. It doesn't take the pain away, right? The only thing that takes pain away are like the, the, the inflammation. If you take the inflammation away or the nerve issues related, I'm not trying to get all psychobabble, but the, the, the point I'm trying to make is, is that what it also takes away is, you know, fear and anxiety and living life on life's terms, uncertain right now about where you're gonna get your next paycheck or how you're gonna support your family. So it has a psychological component that unfortunately wasn't really recognized um, by the medical profession at times. And as a result, you have a lot of athletes now, some recently retired, some retired for many years, who are really, really struggling because it's not just the physical chronic pain that they're dealing with, but it's also the psychological dependence that they just got used to after doing it for years. 
And and so many people have probably, you know, anybody listening most likely has taken an opioid in some capacity. I mean, you have any type of surgery, you pretty much go to the doctor, they write you, they'll write you a, a, a Vicodin or a, a Percocet prescription for pretty much anything. And I, I remember, so I've had um, kidney stones a few times in my mm. life and I've been, and it's awful to say the least, uh, easily the most pain I've ever been in. So knock on wood, it doesn't happen anytime soon. But the, the doctor, you know, it's other than that first night where everything is just maxed out, I hate taking painkillers because you're right. It's not the fact that, you know, I like not having the pain, but I just feel just completely out of it. I'm completely zonked. As you say, I don't, I didn't care about anything. Nothing yeah. mattered. And it was just whatever. It didn't matter. So it was, I, I hate taking them and I do everything in my power to make sure that I do not. When it comes to that though, with these athletes and, you know, having this chronic pain. And as you said, it's not just the physical, it's the psychological I can understand weaning them off the psychological aspect of it, but if you take those painkillers away, they're still in pain, right? So how, yeah, like I understand you helping them with the addiction, but I guess you're just a piece of this puzzle at that point. Right, right. There, well, the bottom line is, is there's, there's definitely holistic ways to deal with chronic pain. Mm-hmm. It takes more time. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's much easier to take a pill and be, feel better in 15, 20 minutes than to do, you know, um, ice baths and, and stretching with a bunch of ibuprofen, which could take hours, if not weeks. So, so I, I, I get it. It all comes down to the pros and cons of your choices. Addiction has very little to do with how much or how often you use, to be honest with you. It has more to do with the consequences afterwards. And so, um, you know, it's really important in my experience is if you think you have a problem, you probably do. And so that's why I'm grateful that I've devoted over half my life now um, to helping people combat addiction. And that's why we're there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you want to get any information, if you want to yell at me, if you want to kind of receive options on treatment, whatever, whatever is, you know, is needed. But unfortunately, it's a vicious cycle that not only athletes, you know, get involved with, but as you may or may not know, opiate epidemic and deaths reached over 70,000 in 2019, which um, took over car accidents as the leading cause of death for 28-year-olds and younger. And we started seeing a bit of a downward trend and then COVID hit, and now it's back on the rise again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about kind of the effects of what's going on with, with this pandemic and everything, but with, with athletes in particular, um, how are they different than the normal Joe? Yeah. We'll, we'll use me. How are they different than the normal yeah. deal? Like what, what are their, they're obviously wired yeah. differently than you and I. So what have you found in trying to help and not trying treating them? What have you well, found how they're different than just, you know, the normal, normal person? Right. So there's definitely differences in different cultures and different populations and different people in general. Just like legendary musicians, you're not just usually dealing with the client per se, you're dealing with their machines, whether it's their attorneys, their agents, their publicity people, and their coaches, um, you know, their agent, um, it, it gets to the point where you want to be able to just focus on the main priority. And, you know, at times, you know, you can, but that, that's definitely one of the differences right off the bat. The other main difference is what I've already mentioned and alluded to is, is that they don't get paid unless they're on the field or the court or the, the rink or whatever. And, and so, you know, um, I, I'll never forget one of these linebackers told me, and this is a guy who's like 6'6", 270, 4'4", speed, like ridiculous, like a freak of nature kind of linebacker who told me, Paul, if, if I don't you know, get on the field and deal with this, they think I'm soft. And if they think I'm soft, then I'm not going to be able to get that next contract when my three years is up on the first one. And so there's a lot of pressure on them to, to, to kind of perform and um, along with the psychological component of being tough. So, you know, there's definitely some unique, that's the great thing about using music is, is that, you know, even when I have an agent in the room who's more concerned about the next contract than at times 
the well-being of their own client. Um, sometimes, you know, using music in one of the sessions, which I've done, tends to kind of break them down and unifying them. And I can elaborate on that if you'd yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that that was going to be my follow up question is so with these athletes being wired differently, being just a, a different different level of human when it comes to a lot of these things, the physical, the emotional, the mental. How like with music, how much easier is it to, as you say, break them down to then be able to build them back up within the the correct image? So let me give you an example. Um, recently, I had to do an intervention on a professional athlete. And you have to picture this, his, his parents were there, the agent was there, one of the either assistant or high school coaches was there, and they were all kind of worried about his well-being. And so was I going to approach this like I've seen the show Intervention where I get everybody to write a letter and explain what was going on? And I remember thinking like, that's not going to work for this guy. He's too um, arrogant and too grandiose. He had already kind of made it big. And unfortunately, um, you know, we, we had to kind of figure out a way how to, as you would say, break him down. So unfortunately he had lost his dad about uh, two months before that. And um, as a result of that went off the deep end even more. And I spoke to the mother about, Hey, was there a song that um, reminds you of his, um, you know, your, his father or something. And she like, without hesitation, identified a song called a change is going to come by Sam cook, which by the way, was written for the civil rights movement back in 1964, which in my opinion is applicable today in more ways than one. So when I got to the house, I asked the gentleman who was the client permission before we started with anything, cause he was already defensive. Um, he played defense <laughs> and, um, and, um, to play a song and he was like, sure, man, whatever, no problem. It ain't going to matter. You know, like I ain't going nowhere. I'm telling you right now, I got this, you know, and I played the song within literally a minute and a half. He broke down like a little baby uncontrollably to make a very long story shorter than I probably have. He agreed to go to treatment. And as far as I know, he's got nine months clean today. That is fantastic. And yeah. you, you bring up, you know, the fact, you know, stubborn, arrogant, um, you know, very proud. Those are some traits of athletes, because as you said before, with the other, the other example that you gave us, if they're not on the field, they're soft. If they're not on the field, they don't get paid, but they also are looked down upon by their teammates. So it is a system that doesn't really help. But in terms of this gentleman, what was it like? I mean, so this isn't, this isn't the first time you did it, obviously you've, you've, you've no. been it for a very long time. But what was it like, just the continued validation, the continued acceptance of these athletes to say, again, very strong, big, you know, you said 266, 270, it's a big, it's a big person. Um, you know, with that, like, what is, what is it like seeing something like this and knowing like within a minute and a half, just by playing a single song, you can see that you've, you, you are on the path to changing this person's life. I mean, it's like, where you been all my life? I, I was trained in a way to do things that depended on me and how good I was and, and how um, effective I was and using tools that, in my opinion, at times are not effective or outdated. And so it's so refreshing to see what a three minute and 20 second song was able to do could have taken me hours and maybe that would have never even worked. So to, to not only see that, but part of our discharge plan at Recovery Unplugged is we give musical prescriptions in the form of earbuds and an MP3 player. In other words, like we don't just tell them, okay, stay out of bars, don't go to strip clubs anymore, uh, hit your knees, pray, go to meetings, go to church, whatever, which is something we already have to you know, tell them to do. That's true too. Um, but you you want to play this music too. And the, the best thing about that, Michael, is I never have to, I might have to tell them all the other stuff, but I'll never have to say, and don't forget to play music. It's something clients already want to do. It's something they already used. So now whenever this particular gentleman, because he's called me since, gets either lonely or, or sad or has urges, there's different songs that we've created in his treatment plan that he literally can just hit play 
and it immediately reframes it, changes his mood, so he doesn't have to act on his feelings. How long did it take you to come up with the musical prescription idea and and attaching specific songs to specific urges? Because obviously it's subjective for everybody, at least I'm assuming. How, like, at what point during your career was you like, I got it again. Here's another incredible idea. Wow. So again, it was a series of events over years figuring out what is my job as a human being, as a clinician, as a provider, right? What are the main issues that any person, let alone client has, right? We, we, all, we all feel hopeless at times. We all feel lonely. We all feel depressed. We all have fear. We all have anxiety. Like, let's just take those five things. What if I figured out a song from every genre of music, from every decade going back to the 40s, and created a song that could potentially remedy any one of those five issues? And so... When we first opened Recovery Unplugged, I created a list of about 300 songs from total different genres and and, um, decades and started using it and found that it was effective. That is awesome. I'll take it a step further. Please. A lot lot of clients um, aren't into particular kinds of music. And so my job as a clinician is to teach clients how to be open-minded open-minded to suggestions, to different thoughts, different ways of handling things, especially athletes who, you know, tend to know what they need to do. And I got this, you know, that's their famous uh, saying. By the way, Richie Super wrote a song called I Got This, making fun of that. Um, and so what I, what I ended up doing is, is that um, I, I figured out a way how to help clients, you know, relate to the songs where they're able to you know, on their own, you know, change, you know, their mood, which then makes recovery more of a payoff than getting high. I love that. And as you yeah. said, you're, you're helping them essentially get high through music, right? Like that is yeah. exactly what it's, that, that's the intended goal. So now they don't even want to, or they don't even care to or need to anymore, which I think is the most important part. And, you know, speaking about athletes, some more, what, what, like, I understand, as you said, you know, this, your treatment, type you know what what you do with music is more effective for everybody just across the board i think you said four, about four times more more effective why do you think it's so much more effective for athletes specifically because so i can't say it's more effective for athletes i okay. can tell you that i think it's more effective for everyone there's no one right now listening by the way who hasn't including you who hasn't been directly or indirectly affected by alcoholism or addiction this is a universal problem so Music is a universal truth, but some of the reasons why it's more effective in athletes specifically that I found is because they're already using music, right, to train, to, 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 to do what they need to do, right? What I love is having a client who's an athlete, and this particular one who was an NBA, uh, former NBA all-star, who was into old school hip-hop, which, by the way, I love. Right. Being from New York, I can talk about that at a later show. But he hated country music. And I knew my job was to teach him how to be open minded. That was going to be one of his biggest hurdles, how to listen right to the message, not the messenger, how to put the principle before the personality if he wanted to get better. So I found out he hated country music. He was in one of our groups called Feel Good Friday, where Richie Supa and the band performed songs specifically written about recovery and addiction. And I knew he hated country. So I had Richie play a song by Johnny Cash called Folsom Prison Blues, which is a, um, a, a very upbeat type of country song with a lot of instrumentals and jamming. At the end of it, I asked him, I saw you dancing around out there, man. What's up? I thought you hated country. And then he looked at me like, ah, you manipulated me. And now I said, well, you know what? That's called positive manipulation. What I really just did was taught you how to be open minded. So you don't, when you hear things like the C, you're contempting it prior to the investigation, which you might hear in an AA meeting, you'll know what that means. And then that is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is basically a $2 phrase of changing one's thinking and behaviors. And I was able to do that with a song. So it's not just about music that people like. It could be about music that they're not necessarily interested in, and it could still be used as a tool therapeutically. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. And I think it's amazing. And and I agree, like, it's very hard to say you don't like an entire genre of music unless you've listened to every song, which is essentially impossible. Some old school hip hop. We could definitely have another episode about that. I think we could do pretty good with that one. But with with the athletes. So you said a couple times now, former athletes, former athletes. Is is it with have you found that your clientele is mostly on the former athlete side after they get out of the sports or are you trying your best to kind of get them before the addiction bug does if that's a good way to ask that question yeah so i would say there's definitely more of a perception of former athletes we definitely do have current ones as well um if anything and I hate to frame it like this because it sounds weird, but the COVID virus, which has forced a lot of people to lose their jobs, work from home, or not be able to work, have used that as an opportunity to get help. So there's actually some athletes right now in treatment that um, wouldn't be able to do so if mm-hmm. there was a season going on right now. Wow. So again, let's make uh, let's turn something, everything into positives. That's what right. we're trying to do, obviously. So there's a lot of negatives that come with a pandemic, but I do think as well, the positives that can come with it are pretty impactful too, which is very important. And I think let's, let's focus on that a little bit more. I think that part's important. And so with, with athletes, right? So we were, well, let's, let's talk some Mets. Let's talk a little Mets right now. We obviously know Doc and Daryl, um, the incredible 30 for 30 documentary. It's one of my favorites because I'm a Mets fan. And it's one of my favorites outside of my bias. I think it's absolutely fantastic. It really dives into the both of them, what they went through in their playing careers, kind of how Doc then, you know, of course goes to the Yankees and throws his no hitter and, you know, everything that's around it and all the things that came with it. And it's it's a really interesting documentary because we're seeing it from the, you know, we're looking back on it where, you know, Keith Hernandez is there and he's fine now. We all kind of know Keith did some bad stuff out in St. Louis and that's why he was shipped off to the Mets, right? Like there's a lot of different people and players in this documentary, but it's very interesting to watch because Daryl is doing pretty well. And now he's fine and he's happy. And he has a wife and he's, he, you know, he's a man of faith and he has all that. And then Doc very, very clearly is not doing well. And obviously this documentary came out a few years ago, but when you see something like that, how, how do you watch that? How do you like look back on all of those things and try and see places where you could have impacted potentially them or, or even had the chance to impact them? So what's interesting about that documentary that came out, which was, I believe about two, three years ago now, a couple of years, it, it might even be more honestly. Yeah. I actually got to do a presentation um, for I think it was maybe the Boys and Girls Club, I, United Way, I forgot, with Daryl. Um, so if you want to ask how it's impacted, he's not only doing better, but he's now using his testimonial to help others. So, I mean, and, and I'm sitting there looking at him like, damn, dude, you, you still look like you can hit a ball. He was in great shape. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough, uh, you know, to know um, of the situation with him and Daryl. Um, you know, back in the day when they were trying to, you know, get clean and, and, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of clients, uh, if you talk about another difference, a lot of clients that come into treatment stop using because they run out of money. Um, I, I've literally heard clients say that were professional athletes with multi-million dollar contracts. Like, you know, my alimony is a hundred grand a month. Like I, 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 I'm never, I'm not going to run out, you know, like I, I got to just stop, you know, you know, for myself or to avoid, you know, other consequences. So when you see, you know, uh, the, the trials and tribulations, whether it's with doc or, or Daryl, or I can name 30 other professional athletes, um, it hurts my heart. Um, because, you know, I feel like they were given a gift and, um, got caught up in, you know, the, the disease of addiction. And unfortunately, if God forbid they had cancer or, or diabetes or some other chronic disease, they would have been perceived a lot different than, than the disease of addiction, which has been part of my life's mission, which is to change the stigma that's attached to addiction. And we appreciate you there. And yes, it's a, it's again, the documentary is incredible. And it's just so sad to see the two absolute rising stars and just how incredible their careers could have been, unfortunately, if it wasn't for this, uh, you know, for addiction and what happened to them within their careers. It's unfortunate. Um, you know, 86, man, it's the, 
that I still haven't seen one yet. So hopefully, hopefully sooner rather than later. But it is a, it's an incredible documentary if no one's ever seen it. And obviously, very close to you now, knowing that you uh, spent some time with Daryl and, and really did help help him spread his message, which is actually a question that I had written down. What is it like knowing that not only are you affecting these athletes, but now you're using essentially influencers to let them go out and start to change the world. In turn, now your reach, your spread, your amplification, you're going through the most incredible Steven Tyler, famous people on planet Earth, and now it's just spreading like wildfire. I mean, seriously, I had no, I knew music was going to work. I knew that for sure, even though friends of mine were making fun of me and thought it was a gimmick, right? I was clear it was going to work if harnessed correctly. I had no idea I was going to cross paths with Steven Tyler with do, do you see this picture? Yeah, who do we got? That's the Rolling Stones. Oh my goodness. All right. <laughs> yeah, there's me right there. All um, right. So I I bring that I bring that up um, because some of the you know band members are familiar with recovery. You know, like as Steven told me, look, Paul, you know, like <laughs> I have cars I've never even driven. <laughs> like there there there's nothing else I can do except help people. And you're using music to do that. Like that's right up my alley. There's a lot of people out there right now who are acknowledging they're in recovery. You can Google it. It's not like something I'm breaking their confidentiality or anonymity about it. Um, and as you mentioned, can be used as influencers to help the masses by saying like, look, I had this problem, you know, it, it, it's okay. You can get better. And here's how, you know, we can help. Yeah, I think that part, I think that's one of the most important parts. So one of my uh, close friends, mentors, David Meltzer has a, a, he wants to help a billion people become happy. And by doing that, he's trying to influence, uh, you know, a thousand to influence a thousand to influence a thousand, or I, th I don't know if they math correct that way, but that is exactly what you're doing. And you're doing yeah. it at the highest possible scale. So you're influencing a lot of people and you're helping them get better, get recovery, you know, fight addiction and, and overcome it. But then you're, you're because you're doing it on such a high level in terms of who these people are, you can then have the Rolling Stones go out and tell them, tell, you know, tell your story and what you do and how you were able to help. And then they can they can get in front of probably a couple more people than I will be able to with this interview. So I apologize there. Maybe one day. No, then, listen. You know. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I remember asking, um, you know, Stephen and Richie when they wrote their songs about recovery back then. And I'm going back 30 years why didn't you just acknowledge that this is about recovery? Because it wasn't, it wasn't accepted back then. So as the country goes through a revolution, in my opinion, on certain levels, there's also a lot of discrimination going on and has been going on with, with addicts and alcoholics. As a matter of fact, treatment of addiction, I have always seen as the redheaded stepchild of the medical profession. And that's because of a variety of different reasons. So people like Stephen and many others, Richie Supa is out there about his own recovery uh, too, just celebrated, I think, 32 years clean. Um, so, you know, there's definitely a lot of people out there that are trying to, you know, change this country, change the world by letting, giving people hope. And I think that's, it's just incredible, man, what you've been able to do. And, and, you know, as you said, some of your friends are making fun of you, but I'm sure you're the one with the last laugh right now, especially with as many people as you're helping. And I, I can't lie. I, I lost count of the amount of boats that are passing by you uh, behind <laughs> you right there. So you're, you're, it looks like you're in a nice spot. So with that, I do want to talk a little bit about the pandemic. So one thing that was very interesting, you know, they're talking about essential places and places that need to stay open, especially those first few months in specific places like up here in New Jersey, alcohol stores, you know, liquor stores that we have here in New Jersey. They're not everywhere because you, you can probably get most alcohol in, in, uh, grocery stores but here in new jersey you have to go to a liquor store to buy alcohol and everyone's like why the hell are liquor stores essential and then you kind of start putting two together and you know if people run you know alcohol is one of the addictions that is actually going to kill you if you you know the withdrawal is bad enough so what like with this pandemic how as you said people now have you know quote unquote they have the time to be able to talk to you and talk to your team and start their recovery process what else have you seen with this pandemic? The, the positives and, of course, you know, it's, we have to talk about the negatives too. Yeah, I mean, listen, like I mentioned before, there was a trend of alcoholism, um, opiate abuse, and addiction overall going down slightly for the first time in many years. The pandemic, unfortunately, think about it. <clears throat> it reinforces fear and anxiety and boredom. And even people that are working from home now are, since they're not around their superiors, are drinking. 
while they're working and no one can tell and know. I, I've seen stats anywhere from 50 to 150% rise. I can only tell you this, at Recovery Unplugged, our admissions that we're getting from all over the country um, are, we're on, we're on pace to have, you know, a record month in terms of admissions. Um, so, so unfortunately, um, you know, the pandemic is, is reinforcing some of the signs and symptoms that most addicts have. And that, that's why they use the alcoholism or the addiction to self-medicate. And how have you been running your business, you know, obviously, again, you know, the whole point of your business is to put yourself out of business, right? Like, unfortunately, that will never happen. You know, addiction is going to be here. There's too many vices. There's too many people doing too many things. But what have you been doing differently? And what has, you know, Recovery Unplugged been doing differently during these last three or four months to make sure that you're still getting out and you're still helping as many people as you possibly can? So a few things. First of all, we have telemedicine. So those clients that aren't able to physically get to any one of our locations, we could still help them. Two, we follow not only all the CDC guidelines, but we have um, we've had testing kits and and confirmations of that. So if anybody does um, test positive, and you know, thank God that hasn't happened yet, um, we're able to quarantine them and self isolate them in our location while they're getting you know the help they need. Um, you know, we're also mindful of you know all of the issues you know surrounding those fears. So we're able to kind of, you know, deal with them appropriately, but we've been open, you know, the whole time We're we're a, we're a real essential business. Absolutely. Yes. A hundred percent. And I can, I can completely understand that. So Paul, this has been absolutely fantastic. We have a couple more topics to discuss, of course, but I, again, just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, Paul Pellinger, co-founder of Recovery Unplugged. So a couple more things. So we've we, I guess let's just talk about it. We've talked, we said Steven Tyler's name probably 15 or 16 times throughout this interview. How, what was it like when that first time he wanted, he said, you know, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll come in on Friday and play some music for you guys. Like what is, how was that validation? Was that just a, a mind blowing experience? How, tell, tell me a yeah. little bit about that event. So like, I'm a starstruck guy anyway, I'll admit it, you know, like, especially when part of those stars are through his music or, or the story of my life in a way. Right. So, um, so what happened is, is Richie Supa, who became a great friend, who now that I see him every day and talk to him and all that stuff, I, I've become a little desensitized, even though every once in a while, I'll hear a new story. Like, so when you met John Lennon, what happened? Like, Ray Charles said, what to you? Like, you know, I, I still like, you know, have to kind of yeah. wrap my head around that. And he, he told me, hey, listen, Paul, you know, I just spoke to Steven, he's going to be in town. Um, he's, he's gonna, he wants to come by and, and meet you. I told him all about using music and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you can't tell anybody because he trusts me and we don't want paparazzi here. Remember this is about the clients, not about anything else to make a long story short, pulls up in the parking lot. First thing that struck me was he had a guy next to him that was kind of your size. And I remember thinking like, who's that? He's like, that's his bodyguard. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, he's MMA. I was like, oh, okay, I got it. So Richie and Steven meet, they hug, they start crying like little babies. And um, I remember feeling uncomfortable. Like they're literally crying for like three, four minutes. Like they hadn't seen each other in a couple of years. And let's face it, you know, they, they, they were known as the toxic twins, right? They, 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 got, they went through the war of addiction and survived it, right? And then Steven turns to me and I look at him and um, – Stephen go, Richie goes, that's Paul, who I was telling you about. So Stephen gives me a hug and I went to like back up and he like held on. <laughs> he was very disarming. And I remember thinking, I'm glad my girlfriend's not listening to this because she's like, if I hear this story one more time. So thank you for asking. But, you know, the, the bottom line is, is he was very disarming. He was very in the present. Um, you could tell he was very committed to recovery and, and, um, you know, I, he, we went out, you know, he, he basically said, yeah, I'd love to be a part of this. And I thought to myself, like, I don't know what that means. And he but agreed yes. to write a forward on my whatever book. It means I'm in whatever. Well, the, well, you know, the interesting story about that is he goes, why don't we go out to dinner and talk about it? And in front of him, I called my son Hunter, who was at the time 14 or 15, I coached his baseball team. And I said, Hunter, uh, we got we got, we have baseball tonight practice because we have a tournament over the weekend. Steven Tyler just invited me out to dinner, but you're more important. And right in front of Steven. And of course, Hunter's like, dad, it's practice. Go, you know, 
practice, right? Remember that? Um, oh, yeah. And, 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 uh, and I remember Stephen looking at me like, hmm, I'm used to people kind of kissing my ass a little bit. Like, this is cool. I respect that he's putting his family first. We ended up going out to dinner and talking about it. And he's been indirectly a part of, you know, what we're doing. He's focused on his, you know, music still. And he has his own foundation and uh, still friends of, uh, you know, Recovery Unplugged. And um, haven't talked to him in a while, but Richie talks to him all the time and fills me in on, yeah, you know, he's doing this and that. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been, I've been very fortunate. We've had the Billy Joel band here. We've had, you know, um, Candlebox, Dion and the Belmonts, Flowrider. Um, oh, I could go on and on. It's all over our, um, we have our own YouTube channel. You can go check it out yourself. Um, there's a lot of people out there that, um, you know, are grateful that we're here and I'm grateful for those people who are willing to break their own confidentiality and anonymity, um, to help others. Exactly. And they, 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 a lot of people don't understand. I mean, sometimes, you know, Steven Tyler understands, obviously Florida, I'm assuming he understands just the power that they hold when speaking to their fans and, and the people that love them so much and the influence, as we've been saying that they have to allow you to, you know, go through them to affect so many millions of people. I think that's the most important thing. And it looks like, it looks like we're well on our way. And the last topic, and I know we're right about up on time, but you wrote the book. You literally wrote the book about this. So <laughs> yeah. Music is our medicine. I can't wait to buy it. So through this conversation, I've been thinking of my one friend, Nick. I don't think he's watching because, you know, it's 12 o'clock on a, on a Thursday or a Friday, whatever t- today is, and he's probably working right now. But I'm going to share the video with him immediately because this is something that he loves and he's very interested in. So I'm going to buy the book for him too. Don't tell him yet. But where where did the idea, like when, at what point, was, did you always want to write a book or did someone just say, you know, Paul, you got this kind of cool idea here. You want to tell us more about it? So, yeah, I've always been a lay in the cut kind of guy. Now I'm on air five, 10, 15 times a month for, for years, right? As far as I'm concerned, I would just kind of sit in the background. And, and it was advised years ago, Paul, you know, you really need to write a book. So I, I wrote this book called Music is Our Medicine. If you could see the, uh, the graphics, it's, um, it's a uh, syringe going into a vein that's going into um, your you know, mm-hmm. earphones, yep. headphones, yeah, headphones, right. And uh, it's called Music is Our Medicine. And it was really about kind of the story of how I came up with the idea and and what I what, and, and, and some of the science behind it, as well as some of the implementation of it. Um, and what I originally wrote it for were the sick and suffering addicts out there and maybe some clinicians. Um, the majority of the responses I'm getting are from just people stuck in traffic saying, Paul, I was stuck in traffic. I remember being miserable and I put on one of my favorite songs and it changed my mood and it helped pass the time quicker or whatever. You know, the, the, the point being is, is that, you know, I really wanted to share the kind of story um, with, with addicts, alcoholics, family members, um, providers and clinicians that there might be a way to help with your outcomes. Um, but in today's days of stress and, as we mentioned, polarization, I just think music can be used as a catalyst to communicate to the soul. And that's where long lasting change happens. And that is where it happens. I love it. Paul, this was absolutely fantastic. Where can everybody, I'll have everything in the show notes, all the information, the YouTube video, all your socials, all your information that you want down there. But where can everybody find you in case they're uh, too lazy to scroll, scroll down their phone a little bit? Yeah, I mean, listen, Paul P at recoveryunplugged.com is my direct email address. If you forget that, just Google Recovery Unplugged and you'll be able to get me through there. Well, I appreciate it. Paul Pellinger, co-founder of Recovery Unplugged, author of Music is Our Medicine All Around. Great guy. Paul, sincerely appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And let me just say one more thing. You probably helped more people than you know today. So I personally want to appreciate you. No. I, hey, this was your show, man. I just brought you on and you're the, you're the guy, you're the guy. And I appreciate you, Paul. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yes.